All right, we are in uh, continuing uh, John chapter 19. We're, we're now focusing on Jesus and the crucifixion. Um, and this lesson really focuses on Scripture fulfilled at the cross. Scripture fulfilled at the cross. And here is the point of this. We know, you've heard me say it before, that there are approximately 300 prophetic statements about Christ in the Old Testament. 300 prophetic statements. Um, and we know, we know this, and so now we've studied a number of them, and now we're going to focus just on a few that came to fruition as Jesus was expiring on the cross. Now, the, the first prophetic statement about Jesus uh, and his role in this world and, and the juxtaposition of Jesus and Satan was in Genesis at the Garden of Eden. Uh, and in the Garden of Eden, right after, right after Satan uh, brought uh, Adam and Eve to sin and to fail and to death, uh, God pronounces a, a judgment. He pronounces a judgment and a prophecy on, on the snake. And he says to the snake, he said, uh, he said, as to her offspring, as to her offspring, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. I believe you can find that in Genesis 3 or Genesis chapter 4. You can read that on your own. But obviously, the, the prophecy, the prognostication that the very, the very offspring of Eve would come one day and crush the head of Satan. And that's what's going to happen. Jesus will one day come back to this world, uh, and Satan will be thrown into a lake of fire. In the meantime, Satan took his licks. Certainly his, his strongest licks were against Jesus on the cross, and certainly uh, the heel was bruised there, but Jesus defeated that. Jesus rose again from the grave. And so now we're going to focus just on a series of those prophecies that relate to the cross. Now, the question you might have to me is, why are we focusing on this? We're focusing on this so that when you speak to the world, to the lost people of the world about who Jesus is, you need to be able to tell them that this was forecast and prophesied Thousands of years before Christ came to this world. Thousands of years. People always say, well, do you have proof? I'll give you proof. I'll give you proof. You want proof? I'll give you proof. Uh, and so we start right in the Garden of Eden, which is eons before. We don't even know how many years before, but eons before, and God making this statement about what Jesus would do. And now you're going to see it interwoven into the very fabric of the Jewish lives into the very fabric of the Old Testament. Uh, and these prophecies will begin uh, with Moses and the Jewish people coming out of Egypt. And you will hear about that, and you'll see about what the Passover and how the Passover was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. We're going to put that all together. But you need to understand this so that when you speak about Jesus, you speak not just that he was a great man, not just that he changed the world, but that he was the son of God. He was God himself and that God preordained who he would be. We don't believe in fables. This isn't about fables. God is not drawing us to the cross by blind faith. We don't have blind faith. We have faith fully developed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the Old Testament in every possible way. And so we want to bring that realization to a lost world. So take a look at John chapter 19. 
uh, verses 23 and 24. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This, will, this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, and then there's a quote from scripture, which relates to Psalm 22, quote, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Imagine that, Psalm 22, written 1,000 years before Jesus Christ would be born. 1,000 years of uh, a prophecy of David. Um, and so uh, extraordinary. And so you see this as they actually uh, draw lots for the very clothing of Jesus. Uh, and they draw four lots. They draw four lots because the one piece uh, was an undivided undergarment. Uh, and I presume, uh, we don't know this, but I think we can presume it from, from the facts that we know. We know that Jesus traveled with a group of women, and some of the women that were there uh, were wealthy. We know that Joanna uh, was the wife of the chief steward of Herod. And she traveled regularly with Jesus, if you believe that. Uh, and so people there had, had the ability uh, to obtain those kind of things for Jesus, even though Jesus was penniless, he didn't have a thing, but he had this. Well, this one undergarment was certainly uh, valuable. So uh, G, uh, uh, John is making it very clear, very clear to us that there are extraordinary things taking place at the cross, and we need to be aware of it. Turn to John chapter 5, verse 39. And this is Jesus speaking. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Look, <laughs> here's the point. Merely studying the Bible isn't going to give you eternal life. You understand? You can know the Bible inside out from the beginning to end, and that's not going to get you to heaven. The only thing that's going to get you to heaven is if you understand that the scriptures speak about Jesus and you come to Jesus and recognize Jesus. So Jesus is saying that the scriptures testify about him. And so if we don't teach what the scriptures testify about, then woe is me. I'll have to face God someday, and that won't be a pretty picture if I don't do that right. Uh, and frankly, one of the reasons why the Jewish community was completely unprepared for the birth of Jesus, was that for the last 300 years before Christ was born, the rabbis stopped teaching the prophetic books of the Bible. They stopped teaching it. When you go and study this, that's why they were not ready. They did not recognize that Bethlehem was going to be the, the birthplace of Jesus Christ. They did not understand all the signs because they had not been taught. And yet when the wise men, the wise men came in from what is present-day Iraq, uh, the wise men came in. The wise men knew something big was going to happen in Bethlehem. And they were following the star because they had known that the time was appropriate. They knew the prophecies of Daniel. And we're going to study those prophecies later this year. The prophecies that predicted really right up to the very end when Jesus would be born. And so they were aware of that. They had studied it and they were coming. And yet, yet the Jewish community did not. And so you see, this is the result of, of not being prepared. Uh, and so the apostles understood 
that the experience of Jesus at times was confusing during the life of Jesus had with the apostles. They walked for three years. They very seldom got any of it. They read the scriptures. They heard it taught, but they still found it confusing. Uh, and, and so uh, the point is that only after Jesus died that it began to be clear to them as to uh, what Jesus was about. Now, I, I'll prove this to you in a very simple way. Look at Luke 24. This is on the road to Emmaus. This is a great scripture. All right, Luke 24, beginning at verse 13. And this is right after Jesus is crucified. And there are two disciples here. One is Cleopas. We don't know the name of the other. But they're now walking away from Jerusalem, absolutely brokenhearted. Brokenhearted. Uh, and look at what... what uh, takes place. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus appeared, came up, and walked along with them. Now, this is a post-resurrection appearance. You got that? All right. You want proof that Jesus resurrected from the grave? Here it is. All right. This is right after the crucifixion. Three days later, Jesus is now walking on the road to Emmaus with these two guys who are distraught. Their world has collapsed. Everything has come down upon them. Uh, but, but they were kept from recognizing Jesus. And I believe that Jesus did that purposely. He wanted to speak to them without letting them know immediately who he was. And so he says to them in verse 17, well, what are you discussing together as you walk along? You got to love it, right? It's like an atomic bomb just went off. And this guy says, well, what, what, what are you talking about? Oh, possibly the bomb that just went off, right? Uh, they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor? And do not know the things that have happened in these days? What things, Jesus said? You see, Jesus trying to get us to talk, come out of ourselves. What's bothering you? What is it? And I love, you got to love the Lord. What is it? What things? About Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Uh, and then they go on. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb and early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came out and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions, verse 24, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And look at now how Jesus zeroes in like a laser. Like a laser. Verse 25, Jesus said, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? There it is. From the horse's mouth. But you guys, haven't you studied the Bible? Haven't you studied the scriptures? Don't you realize that everything that you saw Everything that took place was prophesied that the Christ had to suffer it. It was all part of the overall plan. And then fantastically in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Ladies and gentlemen, I will submit that in that two and a half, three hour period, that was the greatest sermon and Bible study ever delivered in the world as God himself pulled it all together and explained everything 
that God had determined and prophesied uh, about Jesus from the beginning to the end, from Moses through the prophets, every single thing. Well, we know the story that after walking two and a half or three hours, they had dinner together, they constrained him, uh, and they didn't want him to leave. You can imagine, who none of us would want Jesus to leave. And, and they wanted to stay, and then he, they have the, the dinner, and Jesus breaks the bread. And at the moment when they see him, the way he broke the bread, they knew it's Jesus. And Jesus disappeared, and they bent back to Jerusalem to tell the apostles what the story was. And so there it is. That's what this is about. I'm going to show you the prophecies about Jesus that take place and are fulfilled at the cross. Now, the first of these, well, there's four such prophecies that relate to the cross. The first of these relates to the division of Christ's clothing among the soldiers of the execution party and the casting of lots for his seamless inner garment. This is in, we've described it already in verses 23 and 24. I'd like you to turn to Psalm 22. And much of what we're going to do today relates to Psalm 22. It is one of the great prophetic psalms in, in Scripture. Uh, and you know that David had a tremendous gift of prophecy. And so here he is uh, speaking and, and, and talking prophetically about what will happen at the cross when Christ will be, uh, will be crucified. Look at verse 18. Remember now, this is 1,000 years, 1,000 years before uh, the crucifixion. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Notice how that's written, all right, separately. They, they divide, they take lots, they take lots, for, the, for my garment and divide my clothing. Meaning what? It was going to be done in two steps. It was going to be done in two steps. They divided the garments amongst them. And then at some point, not just dividing, but then they cast lots. What's well, exactly what happened? There, they, they, there were three of them. And so the three of them divided the three garments. Then the one piece that was most valuable, that they couldn't divide. They weren't going to cut that up. They cast lots for it, exactly as God had prophesied uh, 1,000 years before. Next, uh, we're going to see that Jesus is given uh, a vinegar solution to drink. Take a look in uh, John 19, verses 28 and 29. Later, knowing that it all was now completed, and so the scripture would be fulfilled, notice that. Later... This is John writing. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus is mindful of all of the prophecies that God has put together and is concerned that he puts a bow on them and completes everything so that God's will has been perfectly realized in every possible way. Can you imagine? All right. Uh, uh, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. All right? And so you see uh, Jesus drinking that way. Well, let's take a look. A look at Psalm 69. All right? Go back. Psalm 69, verse 21. For they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for 
my thirst. And again, this is a psalm that also speaks about the, about the crucifixion. And so you see this here, that, that a thousand years before, it's, it's prophesied that they would actually give Christ vinegar at the end to drink uh, as, as part of the great suffering and persecution he, he would experience. Now, also, uh, and, and we see here, Jesus saying, I thirst, uh, that, that aspect of I thirsting also fulfills the scripture here in terms of this psalm. Then we come to the breaking of the legs of the two thieves, coupled with the decision not to break Jesus' legs. And this is uh, described uh, in John 19, verses 31 to 36. Let's pull that up and study that, if you would. Um, and this was typically a part of the crucifixion, because at some point in time, in order to bring the crucifixion to an end, typically they would break the legs. Uh, the legs would cause additional stress on the body. The body would sag. There'd be no support, uh, and the, the uh, suffocation would take place. And so here you take a look at verses 31 to 36. <clears throat> now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. In other words, we don't want this reminding us on the Passover. Let's bring this to an end right now so we don't have to see bodies on crosses. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it was given testimony, and he's speaking about himself now. And his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that a scripture would be fulfilled, quote, not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says they will look on the one they have pierced. All right. This is written now by John at the foot of the cross. He testifies to what he sees. He sees this taking place. They break the legs of the one thief. They break the legs of the second. And as they go to break the legs of Jesus, he's gone. He's expired. They don't have to write. They don't have to break his legs, yet they will pierce his side. So this relates to prophecies that we will find in Psalm 34. Take a look at Psalm 34. And you'll have this in my outline, and which is good for you to keep. Keep copies of it in your Bible so you can speak to people. Psalm 34, verse 20. He protects all his bones, and not one of them will be broken. Not one of them will be broken. Now, what is the importance of this prophecy? The importance of this prophecy goes back to the time of Moses. It goes back to Moses, and it, go, and it relates to the Passover, because the first Passover that is ever celebrated, as the Jewish people are about to be brought out of bondage, as they are taught about the power of God who will be with them and deliver them, they are told that night that an avenging angel will come and will wipe out the firstborn of all the Egyptians. But you will be protected if you engage in the Passover ritual. You will take a, a lamb, and you will uh, take that lamb and cook that lamb, but you are not to break 
any of the bones because this lamb will be the ritual sacrifice and the blood of that lamb will be put over your lintel, that door. And as the avenging angels walks alley by alley in Egypt and the firstborn are slain and tens of thousands of Egyptian firstborn are wiped out, not one Jewish boy or girl would be wiped out. They would be protected by the blood of the lamb. And so I want you to just refer to that. So you see that, look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, referring to the uh, Passover lamb. It must be eaten inside one house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. Why? Because God is tying together the death of Jesus that will take place 1,400 years later on the cross in Jerusalem. Do you, are you amazed? Are you amazed how much your God wants to prove to you how, how verifiable he is? We don't have blind faith. There's no such thing as blind faith to a Christian. We have faith that has been revealed and re-revealed and foretold and re-foretold and prophesied time after time after time. One time's not enough for you. Two times not enough. How about 300? Is 300 enough? And you talk to silly people in the world and they'll have various philosophies that they relate to that have no substance whatsoever in truth. And they latch onto it. And yet we are involved in the veritable truth of God. All right. Shame on us for not bringing this message out. Shame on us if we don't have the passion to talk about this. And so here you see it, this, this veritable promise, right to the last detail of his death, his bones would not be broken. Then what about, what about the fact that, that John the Baptist, the first time he saw Jesus, said, behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God. It's the first time we have any indication that he had seen him, even though they'd been cousins. And now he saw Jesus in his ministry. And he says, the Lamb of God. Don't you see, folks? The Lamb of God, the wording so precise. The Lamb, the sacrifice, the ritualistic sacrifice, once and for all, on the cross, for all time. And by the way, not just for Jew that taketh away the sin of the world, Jew and Gentile, Greek and Roman. Yes, the thief on the cross. Yes, and the centurion at the foot of the cross. And us in every way. Oh, God, what an amazing story this is. The piercing of the side. Take a look, if you would, at Zechariah chapter 12. All right? Zechariah chapter 12. And here it is again, speaking about the last days in uh, what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And in verse 10, it says as follows, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Meaning what? The day will come when Jerusalem will realize what they have done. And the one that they have pierced will be before them, and they will be heartbroken. They will be heartbroken when the realization comes in to see what, what they have done, that they have crucified the Lamb of God. And so you see, you see God tying up all these loose ends. 
and Jesus being aware of it. So I will submit to you that at the last moments of his life, as Jesus is being crucified on the cross, I believe that he is very mindful of Scripture. Uh, And I think if you want to think about what he's thinking about, I think you can look at Psalm 22, because I believe that Psalm 22 was particularly on the mind of Christ uh, during the end of his earthly uh, hours. Um, And if you want a clue about that, right at the beginning of the period of darkness, when we know that the darkness envelops Jerusalem for three hours during this period of time, take a look at Mark chapter 15. Mark 15, giving your Bibles a workout. Verse 33, and at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land. I believe that's three o'clock in the afternoon. So I want you to think about it. All of a sudden, it's pitch black in Jerusalem. Pitch black. You can't see your hand in front of your eyes. We know this from other writings of other other Roman writings. All right, Pliny writes about it. It It was evident. That, that a, a deep, profound darkness had enveloped Jerusalem. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at that ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbathakin, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what's going on at that moment? What's going on at that moment is that Jesus has become the sin carrier for all time. From the beginning of time to the end of time, every single human sin is now reposited on the body of Christ. He has become the incarnate form of pure evil. And in that form, he is experiencing momentarily being cut off from God He is experiencing spiritual death because God cannot countenance evil. God cannot countenance evil. And even though it's God himself on that cross, as he becomes a repository of sin and evil, God the Father has cut off communication. Jesus cannot reach him. He cannot speak to him. It is spiritual death the very death that we suffer when we don't accept Christ. And so this is a profound moment. I want you to turn to Psalm 22 and look look at the incredible words. First verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You don't think Jesus was thinking about this psalm? Why are you so far from saving me so far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. You were like, just imagine what it's like to be God, to be the son of God, to be on this voyage, to be the, the sacrifice on the cross. And now knowing everything that's taken place, now you're cut off from communicating with God the Father, who was your, who you communicated with every minute of your life in this world. Imagine the horror of it. And that's why this, this, I believe this is what Jesus is saying. He's repeating the words of this psalm. It is so profound. Uh, and so that's why you need to read it. You need to read the whole psalm here. Um, and and it's, it's unbelievable. 
and then Jesus says, at the end, Jesus says, it is finished. It is finished. And he, and he dies. Uh, and I would submit to you that that also is a quotation of the last verse of Psalm 22. Take a look at that. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that's Jesus, for he has done it, all right? For he has done it. Uh, and so uh, it, it's amazing when you speak about this. And I want you to understand the scope of sin, how significant the scope of sin is, why Christ had to die on the cross, what it was like to experience spiritual death, even for a short peel period as Jesus did. Turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so there it is. Death means separation from God. Not just physical death, not just physical separation, but spiritual separation as well. Spiritual death is the separation of the soul from the source of life, which is God. And so when Christ utters, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the cry of one of actually abandoned by the result of the, by the will of the Father as a result of all of the cumulative sins of humanity from the beginning of time to the end of time. And so this psalm becomes so profound. Uh, another uh, image of the psalm refers to execution. Look at verse 21. That's Psalm 22, verse 21. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Again, it shows this horrific death on the cross from a wild crowd. And most likely Jesus thought about this image and remembered that God was putting him to death for our sins. And so you understand this. And, and, and at the same time, I believe that Jesus understood what, what his life was going to mean um, and that the gospel would be, be spread even beyond Judaism to, uh, to the, the world of the Gentiles. This is suggested, if you would, by the contrast between verses 22 and 25 of this psalm. Take a look at it. Verse 22. I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. You understand? To the congregation of my brothers. I will proclaim your name to the Jewish community. I will proclaim the name of God. I've come first to save the Jews. I'm proclaiming your, your gospel, God. I'm proclaiming your gospel first uh, to my brethren Jews. Then look at verse 25, uh, which speaks about praise in the great assembly. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. Meaning what? The great assembly is the world of the Gentiles. It's not the congregation of the brethren, which is the Jewish community, the smaller group, the congregation, but the great assembly is the world. All of this is going through the mind of Christ a thousand years later on the cross. Make no mistake about it. All of this is what Jesus is reflecting on. Uh, and, and, and that psalm goes on to say, and look at this in triumph, uh, in verse uh, 27, all the ends 
of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Go look to the last verse, verse 31. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. It is finished. All of that on the cross, tying up the scriptures for thousands of years in every possible way, God has delivered to you your savior. He has delivered to you the veritable evidence of his life. Now go out and speak to a lost world telling them this message. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for Christ. I thank you for the scriptures. I thank you for the lessons that you've given it. Have you revealed it us to us, Lord? How clearly you have written about the life of Christ and the prophecies relating thereto. Father, I ask you that you strengthen our will, that you give us courage, that you pour wisdom into our life, that when we leave here, we can go out to a world and speak every day to someone who needs to hear this message. Father, protect our people. Be with them this week and bring them safely back to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.